Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long-distance besties everywhere. I'm Amina Tussauds. And I'm Anne Friedman. And every other week, we bring you a special phone-a-friend episode where either Amina or I call one of our accomplished and impressive besties <laughs> to talk to them about what they've been up to. And this week, I talked to friend of the podcast, Jorge Rivas. Ah, uh, so exciting. What's Jorge up to? Well, Jorge is a reporter for Fusion who is on the Justice Beat. He writes a lot about immigration. He writes a lot about detention and criminal justice. And one thing I love about his work is like he is really good at finding actual human beings who are invested in these issues like capital I that we all think of as like big political flashpoints. Like he really finds humans and talks to them. A real quick note before we get started. If you live in Los Angeles or you like visiting Los Angeles, which that's everybody, you should join us for a very special live show at the Ace Theater downtown on Thursday, August 18th. We'll have many, many, many special guests, including Steph Beatrice, the genius behind the Instagram account, official Sean Penn, and our friends from Who Weekly. And we'll keep announcing more guests as the show date gets closer. But see you in LA, August 18th at the Ace Theater downtown. You can find information to buy your tickets at callyourgirlfriend.com. Well, Jorge just got back from the RNC, and we also talked a little bit about the Democratic Convention, which is happening this week. Um, we did not get the chance to talk about Michelle's speech. Ah, <laughs> uh, full body goosebumps. <sighs> it really, that's kind of how it felt. It was like, exhale, like, we're in good hands. Like, when she was speaking, I was like, oh my god, I don't feel that tension that I felt through the entire RNC with, like, every clip I watched. Also, can we, here's one thing I will say about the RNC. The one, the one thing that I was very surprised by, Ivanka's dad just doesn't have the juice with celebrities. <laughs> You know, it's like, it was like the first night of the DNC. It's like Elizabeth Warren, Michelle Obama, Demi Lovato, (laughs) Um, Sarah Silverman, like, you know, just all these people. And I was like, man, this is only night one. I know. This is like, what's going to happen? So it's just like from a programming note, I was like, I find this very entertaining. Uh, So I don't know, but the, the speech, Michelle's speech, like, honestly, all I can think is like, America doesn't deserve Michelle because... On one hand, it's like I heard all these people be, you know, it's like everybody is like reassured. It's been a hard week. And she just, you know, it's like the ultimate shade, right, is when you talk about someone and don't name them. Like her speech was like such an indictment of everything that we had heard the week before. Oh, when they go low, we go high. I died. Yeah. She like, and she didn't name names at all, right? Um, And I thought it was, (laughs) I was like, this is like, they should teach this at Shade Academy. This is amazing. But on the other hand, too, you know, it's like all these people being like, oh, my God, Michelle's so great. She's so well-spoken. Who knew? And I was like, where have you guys been the last two conventions? Like, Michelle I feel like I didn't see a ton of who down knew. the house. Yeah, I didn't see a ton of who knew, but I did see a lot of, like, 
oh god like we haven't heard enough from her yeah because she's just doesn't um i don't know if you watch the i was in the whatever that dumb dinner is that the president does comedy at for all the journalists oh the press thing thing? yeah that terrible boondoggle oh the correspondence dinner yeah i'm like i don't even want to name it he he like made this joke the last time about how the secret service always has to uh you know it's like michelle's always trying to escape the white house (laughs) and uh and i remember that he was like it's only nine more months baby and and the thing that is true is that like you know it was not her first choice to have this job like she is not psyched about it in the way that like most people are just like thirsty for power so i'm really excited for when she's not in the white house anymore and she just like real talks everyone about just like how terrible it is but i don't know you know like the thing that i love about michelle is that like she like she just gives the like real talk about like patriotism and citizenship and belonging in a way where you can both say like here is how terrible our country has been and here is the promise of it you know i think that rhetorically one one thing i love about her and the way she chooses to frame everything is that you know i think obama is really good at high level like this is how like soaring rhetoric and she's really good at being like no literally this is what's happening (laughs) you know or like this is what has (laughs) happened in the past like and i think that that is that's really a difficult thing to do while also having a moral weight and like having like i don't know being able to command the kind of attention that she commands yeah it's just man uh rebecca traster wrote a really good thing about it for new york magazine that i think everybody should read because She's just like, she's just like, it's so elegant. And I was like, thank you. Like, everything is perfect. Well, you know, one thing that's exciting is that by the time that everybody hears this episode on Friday, the Democratic Party, or really (laughs) any party, would have nominated a woman for president for the first time in the United States. That's... 2016, man. Major two-party system milestone. (laughs) (laughs) I know, you know, like, it's... Man, it is historical. It's historical, and it's great, and, you know, it's it's going to be a brutal fight, but I'm sorry. I'm very excited about that. Oh, yeah. I will never get tired, whether it's, like, Michelle after a speech or Elizabeth Warren after a speech or Hillary accepting the nomination of a woman in front of, like, a stadium-sized group of people who are cheering for her because of, like, her brain. <laughs> You know what I mean? And because of her skills, there's something about that where it's like, not that I don't love like performers and celebrities who get like large crowds excited for them, but like maybe this is some deep, there's something about the, the women who are at the forefront in democratic politics right now where I'm like, oh yes, like just the right amount of nerdy. I love it. (laughs) I know it's, it's the right amount of nerdy. And I don't know, like for Hillary too, it's just like, it's been a marathon to get to where she's at. And I think that, like, for this one week, at least, we can all feel just the enormous amount of, like, lady pride about, you know, like, when somebody, like, makes it to the big job. <laughs> like, this, like we can all channel that. I feel it. It's coursing through me right now. I know. I am so... It's like, I know I will cry. I, like, already know I will cry. I remember her concession speech at the Building Museum in the 08 election and how... I was just it just like a complete mess and I was like this is going to be that but like 10,000 times like crazier. I'm like okay well we'll see if if like any campaigning at all takes place in California single tier but maybe I will have to travel to see her <laughs> at a at a real real big event. Oh my gosh. Um you know and also just I can't believe that like it's 2016 and we're still having like lady firsts all the time. 
I know, but better than the just... alternative, which is never having had. <laughs> I know. But I'm like, this is a big first. And hopefully, you know, like more more like this. More like this. Big it's wins, awesome. big firsts. <laughs> I know. We're yeah. Gonna, it's going to be a very obnoxious week to be, uh, <laughs> to be like a feminist. It's going to be awesome. Oh, Can't wait. Like, very exciting. Uh, okay. Well, and so not to completely walk us back to the RNC garbage fire side of things, but um, it was interesting. Like, it was interesting talking to Jorge about his experiences there because he was essentially there to cover all of the crazy protests on protests on protests and counter protests on counter protests that were happening outside the convention center. He was not, he's not a politics reporter and definitely at the time I talked to him was like still sort of processing everything that he saw there. So, yeah, well, I'm excited to listen to it. Hi, Jorge. Hello. Thanks for being the, the, the distinctive, like maybe first ever male phone a friend guest second. Something like that. You're one of a very elite group of men whose voices have been heard on this podcast. I feel special. <laughs> That's a big deal. I, I know. I'm bringing a man into the circle. Yeah. Only the most special men. Latino men. I'm just gonna set that aside. We yeah. don't have. We don't have quotas. We don't have like. But no, you know, no, no. That's not what I was. I was exoticizing myself. That's listen, not what I wasn't talking. I know. About I was quotas. like, oh my god, the mail we're gonna get. Maybe we can start off by um, having you talk a little bit about your work and your beat as it stands right now. So I am a journalist, and for the past at least 10, 12 years, I've been writing about the intersection of race, immigration, politics, gender. And I know that those sound like very different issues, but I think as someone who represents all those issues in one body and one life, I think that it's totally normal for me. And so I work for Fusion, a fairly progressive daily news website, and we also have a cable network, and it's owned by Univision, the Spanish language mm -hmm. uh, broadcaster. You also have had what I think is a slightly unconventional path to being like a news, a hard news reporter. I mean, right now, a lot of what you do is pretty newsy, right? Yeah. I mean, I definitely did not study journalism. I studied ethnic studies. I think that what I'm amazing at is finding good stories and finding people who generally won't talk to reporters to talk to me. But in terms of writing, I, like I'm not, I, I've never actually, I, I'm not the best writer. I'm a slow writer. But I think what I really pride myself in is just like the, the, the storytelling um, I went to San Francisco State. I studied, at the time it was called Raza Studies. Today it's called Latino-Latina Studies. Mm -hmm. And I started working with color lines. And at the time it was a, a print news magazine. And I started working with them developing video and other like multimedia to accompany their, their written stories. Mm -hmm. And somehow Jorge Rivas started writing and <laughs> people started clicking on their stories. And... I think that the color line stories were pretty dense, like race and, and politics stories. And I was bringing, I think, I, I think that was back in my youth. I was like, I was literally like 20, 21 years old and figuring out how to talk about Beyonce and race. And so, of course, people click on, the, on those stories. And so <laughs> um, I always click those stories. And then, um, as you should, like, I think that that's how we all engage with the world. Like, it's like we need like dense content and then stuff that's going to like make us happy. And so I've just kept on saying yes to jobs. So I've been 
very lucky, especially in a world that where like journalism is so white. To <laughs> for me to like come in here with no journalism degree and get offers. Yeah, I, well, I also think that that's why I wanted to ask about your path because I think that in some ways I consider you among the people I know who are. A really big success story of blogging of like that first era of you know because I know that color lines was a print publication as well but like the the video stuff that you were doing and like when I first encountered your name as like a writer it was definitely in the context of the blog yeah I mean anyway. if that's I think if I have a job today it's because of live journal so like if we just <laughs> like, if we just get down to like the fundamental oh my god what was what was your live journal about my live journal was about like this young gay latino in los angeles who was like going to yoga with his cousin <laughs> like it was terrible um and it was basically like a to-do list of like and like what i did today it was it was literally like a journal oh my um, god do you have it archived somewhere I don't want to say. Okay. People are going to go Google. No, but it. I mean, I guess what <laughs> no. I'm curious about is like. I mean, it's totally live if, if that's what you're asking. So, yes, it's archived in the cloud. Okay. And available but to anyone d- who wants to Google Have you gone it. back to look at it? Absolutely. So, <laughs> my boyfriend, I met on LiveJournal oh. 10, 12 years ago. He was living in New Orleans at the time. Mm-hmm. And we like made the connection there. And at one point, we met in person maybe like five years ago at the Vons on Virgil and Sunset in the parking lot. Mm, I and love then, this local <laughs> local flavor. <laughs> and now, um, and now it's come full circle. And and I think that we're like we are both in the right place. And now we're like Live Journal brought us together. Oh my god. Anyways, back to like how I get paid. <laughs> Live Journal, like I think it really is like where I developed how to everything from writing headlines that people would like to. Mm-hmm developing videos to gifs uh to (laughs) gifs not gifs um correct and that's really like how i became someone who people want to pay for this stuff yeah well and it's interesting you saying you said something a while back about like being a good person to be on this beat because people talk to you and they don't necessarily always want to talk to like a white reporter who's writing about the same thing. And one thing that I always notice is a thing you're so good at is a meet the person behind X or like meet the activist who like, you know, a whole strain of the work you're doing right now is at least as I read it and please correct me if you don't see it this way is about taking big movements or like big things that are happening that seem kind of high level and being like, no, no, here's the person affected or like, here's the person trying to affect it on the activist side. Yeah. I think I write about immigration stories at least once or twice a week. And I don't really like there's people in DC who cover immigration policy and those immigration stories really well. And that's not really where I see myself thriving. I really want to talk to folks who, um, to help illustrate what that policy means mm-hmm. in, to people. And I think as someone who I've done everything from retail to I've been a tutor, I've uh, worked on a living wage campaign. Like I think all those things have given me the sensibilities um, to be able to walk up to someone who doesn't want to talk to you mm-hmm. and start connecting with them. Do you have like tactics? Is there like an opening line that you use? Um, first, I think I, I always introduce myself. 
And sometimes I just go, I don't, I don't know that there's a specific tactic okay. that I like rely on, but other, and I still get nervous walking up to people, especially when they don't look like me. Mm-hmm. So if I'm in Cleveland during the RNC and there's a man with a gun, like I've, I absolutely like shake <laughs> when, and don't know how I would approach that person. But if it's someone who has a family member in immigra- an immigration detention center and they may be deported tomorrow, I do have a better sense of of how to connect to that person because I, I'm part of a mixed status family where I have family members who are undocumented and, and I know what that fear is like. And I, th- and I think that being able to approach someone and say, this is who I am, this is the story that I think is important, like, will you participate? Because I don't have a story without you. <laughs> okay, we have to go back to you talking to a guy with a gun at the RNC because I am shaking just hearing about that. Um <laughs> Walk us through like what you were there to do <laughs> and why you were talking to this guy and who else you were trying to meet. So luckily, I wasn't trying to tell stories about people with openly carrying guns, but I was surrounded by them. So I was in, in Cleveland. I was there from I was there for a f- almost a full week. And Fusion had, I think, maybe like 40 people in Cleveland because the TV side of things were, were there, too. And I was, I mostly spent my time outside. I think I went into the convention one day when Mike Pence spoke. Mm-hmm. Mostly I was talking to activists who, who were there to challenge whatever was going on in, inside, on inside in the, in, the, in the RNC. I definitely saw guns, which I'm, I was born and raised in Los Angeles. I went to school in San Francisco. Like I've never really, I've never shot a gun. Guns definitely make me nervous. And these people had like bazookas, or I don't know what they're called, but they're like huge guns. Um, <laughs> And Sorry, I shouldn't laugh at that, but I'm like, I'm trying, bazooka. I mean, they were huge. <laughs> like cartoonishly large guns. They were like, <laughs> like they were like, basically it was like muscular men carrying guns because like all these guns right. were heavy. What was really fascinating is that they were all like very serious and had like very hard faces. But the only time you saw them sort of like shake that face and become a human person was around older people who were and they always asked if they were veterans mm. excuse me sir are you a veteran and they would like bend down and shake their hands and like just become like these beautiful people you mean they would ask the protesters if they were veterans or Any, anyone else that was walking by huh. another thing that i saw that was really beautiful and just fascinating to me is that there were immigrant rights activists who organized this basically like a human wall around the main entrance to the rnc where all the delegates walked mm-hmm. by and they got veterans to sort of become the like the liaisons between the trolls, the haters, and even police. Where like you have all these Iraq veterans against the war. Like basically, mm-hmm. like, that they went to veteran groups and asked if they would come join them mm-hmm. at this immigration protest to act as liaisons. And I thought that was like such a beautiful story of people coming together, which I think is one good thing that Trump is doing, which is like bringing people <laughs> totally. together from the other side. Totally. Like uniting people against a common enemy, which anyone who's ever been in like a group housing situation knows is like the fastest way to get close to people. It's like uniting against a common, like everyone hates that roommate or everyone hates like, yeah. yeah. But it took Donald Trump, I think. To, oh my God. Yeah. To actually do that. So I'm recalling when, when you were telling that story, I was recalling a thing that I think you posted on your Instagram from a Trump rally that was not related to the RNC, but it was like a photo of like a Latina woman in a pro-Trump shirt or something like that. No, that was at my voting oh, precinct. 
Oh my gosh. So you were not even reporting. You were just like in the wild. (laughs) Yeah. And there was a Latina woman at my, in the neighborhood where I grew up. And so did your reporting instinct kick in where you were like, I want to understand how this woman who I, you know, can see is Latina wants to support Trump. I mean, I didn't ask her. I asked for her name and I asked if I could take a picture of her. And that's sort of like where it ended. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know if someone says racist things, if someone, I think the reason why we are here, where we are today with Donald Trump is because journalists didn't call him out immediately for what he was doing. Like now, when like now that he's got the nomination is when journalists are actually like challenging and asking like, how will you deport 12 million people? Um, or like, why isn't what you're saying not racist or why is it racist? And so, um, no, I didn't ask her. I didn't really like, want to connect with her (laughs) see it's so it's funny that you say that i mean it's not that i think journalists didn't i mean i think that they could have done a better job saying like blatantly this stuff is racist and even if you agree with it there's probably no way to like enact the kind of policies he's promising but i i sort of have gotten to this point where i'm like he is unfact checkable like you know like there is no response to the kind of like but being able to say that well, not it's that, important also. Yeah, well, I'm sorry, I don't mean to just just that like we can definitely fact check him, but in terms of like it having an effect on the people who currently support him. Not that like he cannot be fact checked. Obviously he can. And obviously you can find a lot of support for his blatant racism at various points in his life, you know, like from open housing discrimination in the seventies, like to all the stuff he says today. But I don't know, like there's a part of me that like, I wonder about that when I think about the protesters who showed up at the RNC of like, in some ways I identify more with the, the idea that you should protest outside the DNC. Like, you know, like what is the mind that you could plausibly change here? I don't know if you have thoughts about that. Yeah. I mean, no, that's definitely why I did not talk to that Latina woman Mm -hmm. wearing the the Trump shirt because like (laughs) she wasn't, she wasn't on the fence. Like she was definitely on the other side of the fence. Way on the other side of the um, fence, the wall. (laughs) Right. And the border wall to be, to be precise. Um, Yeah. I think that like I've always written about issues that, are controversial and I've just learned to not burn any calories talking to people that I know I can't move. a lot of stuff about the Obama administration's immigration policies, like actual effects on people. And I know for me that like, when I think about this administration, as much as like, there's a temptation to like, feel awesome about it, <laughs> in, especially in contrast to like, what we might have come November. I'm also like, when I think like immigration is one of those points where I'm just like, man, like you really, it wasn't just like, I tried and failed, but like, you kind of actively were bad <laughs> on I this mean, front. I, I think that it's it's really complicated because I think he's done amazing things and, and he's changed people's lives. So we like have what? deferred Give me the run. Action, Give me the example. pros and cons. Yeah. So specifically <laughs> with immigration, but I think the deferred action that helps young people who came to the U.S. and gives them temporary legal status and a work permit, I think that like that changes lives. That has transformed mm-hmm. the lives of these young people who can now contribute to their society. But at the same time. We have a president who has deported more people than any other president in the history of the United States. 
And this is the same guy who promised immigration reform. Right. And so I think, yeah, it's definitely a love and hate relationship. The other interesting thing that's happening now is for the DNC now, we have two undocumented women who, who spoke on the first night mm -hmm. uh, before Bernie Sanders and before mm -hmm. Elizabeth Warren. And, but Michelle Obama is the, the name yeah. I was looking for. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a big deal to hear from people who, for the DNC to invite undocumented immigrants to tell their own stories. Um, but I think it's also really complicated. Mm -hmm. and, and it's a really difficult thing for me to understand because it's the same party that is deporting people by unprecedented numbers. Yeah, and do you think that that calculus is there? I mean, for someone who has to weigh the platform of saying, I'm going to stand up and be visible for other undocumented people who live in this country versus like, am I kind of propping up an agenda that has actually deported a lot of undocumented people? I mean, I think that those folks definitely get that criticism yeah. and, they're, and they're well aware of the decisions that they're, that they're, mm -hmm. that they're doing. Um, I think that what's really fascinating also is that a lot of the times the people that we see um, at these events with elected officials are immigrants who have thrived, immigrants who have graduated with 4.0s, um, who have gone on to get two or three degrees because they've had no options, um, no legal options for work, but so they end up like thriving in, in school. And so you have these really amazing immigrants. I feel like there's like the NPR story about the valedictorian who supports like, like yeah. the Dream Act. Like, I feel like that's here, a standard totally. Sorry, go on. <laughs> brought here at no fault of their own. Yep. And we paint this really amazing person. And I think that what we're going to start seeing when, when and if we get immigration reform is that people like them are the ones who, who will benefit. Mm. Um, I think that for the high school student who wasn't able to finish high school, for the high school student who couldn't afford a dress to a dance and went to Ross Dress for Less and stole a $20 dress like they, that has colored their, their criminal justice record. Mm -hmm. And immigration reform will leave a lot of people out because of that. I think that it'd be nice if we could see a mother at the... Um, or just a, a gay immigrant who like wouldn't qualify under DACA deferred mm -hmm. action or yeah. for childhood arrivals or deferred action for the parents. Um, but like, we're, we're, that's not what we're seeing. Do you feel like you can sort of make endorsements or pronouncements? Or are you like, are you like, yeah, I want Hillary Clinton to be elected or like, yes, I want this to be a set of policies that what, whoever is the next president enacts or like how, how explicit can you be? I mean, I, I definitely can't and don't want to make endorsements. Mm -hmm. But I think that when you understand that you're writing for young people who are um, part of the most diverse generation of our the history of the, this country and who are just young people of color, I think that there's there's a perspective that you can that you can take and understand and making sure that their voices are, are highlighted. So most of my reporting, like very rarely will you hear me say like, you know, deporting people is terrible. Like, I think what I really want to do is talk to people who have faced, um, who have been split up, families who have been split up, and then and ask them what 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 that means and what that does. Do you feel like if everybody could meet those families, they would still believe that deportation is great? I think a lot of the people who support 
deporting immigrants by the masses have, have not spent time with immigrants. Um, while I was in Cleveland for the RNC, I was, which was like basically uh, the the trolling of trolls, like where like you would see one group hosting a uh, protest and then the trolls would show up, and and it happened on every side, like where. Um, even if it was like the Westboro Baptist Church, like they would like the trolls would come and like there was just like this hatred in the air and it was going back and forth. Anyways, um, the people who were trolling the the immigrant rights protesters like had no idea what they were what they were saying. Um, you had people who were basically saying like do this the legal way or um, get in the line. My friend did it, so you should be able to do it too. Um, and then when these the, the immigrant activists would ask how how do you do that they were like well i'm gonna have to give you my friend's number because i don't know but like it's like so yeah i think to a large degree it's like it's ignorance mm-hmm. that um i don't know there's also this just just this disconnect which i think goes back to race and just like just not identifying with a certain group um because i think that to be able to say that yes you should deport this child's parents um, there's got to be that, that. There's got to be some disconnect there that does not allow you to to connect with them on an emotional level, or like even just humanize them. I don't know. I just like right. that. That to me is one of those extreme examples where I'm like, don't even like suburban white Republican people understand that separating parents and kids is really terrible. Like, you know, like that's one of those things where I actually fail to understand the other side in like this really, I mean like, yeah, I can kind of understand ignorance about the system. If you've never known anyone who's had to reckon with it, but like on, on like a gut level, some of that stuff about families, I really struggle to understand the families, families first party type. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we, we know that there are children in, foster care because both of their parents have been deported Mm -hmm. like that and that i think like why that doesn't make someone's heart skip a beat and reconsider supporting laws that deport people like i just that that's beyond my comprehension right so how did you feel when you got home from the rnc i felt like physically and emotionally exhausting. Like that's been my talking point. Everyone who asked how the RNC went, it's like it was physically and emotionally exhausting. There were long days. I was reporting outdoors and it was hot. I was not used to that weather, <laughs> which is like yes, it's like ninety-seven degrees in Los Angeles today, but humidity is the, the humidity. Yeah. Like I. <laughs> Um, definitely was like the sweatiest person around. Like <laughs> there was one day when I was wearing a black t-shirt and cause I figured like, I can't be wearing button downs in this weather. And that day I was carrying around, I only carried around a bulletproof vest and this crazy helmet for a day because they were like 30 pounds. And so I was carrying around like 35 pounds of equipment. Wow. It was hot. When I finally got back to the newsroom where like hundreds of reporters are, I sit down and I like see a white spot on my t-shirt and I'm thinking like, oh my God, like this is bird shit. Like, so I'm, like, and I, like I've been walking around with this for hours and, like, and I've been like, I'm the only Latino in this newsroom here in like this space and like I have bird shit on You've my shirt. You've literally been shit on. 
And then I looked at my the other side of my shirt, and I had a white stain there too. And then I realized that it was sweat. Like I had like it was like salt on oh my, my shirt God. because I like had just been sweating all day, and I had like all these white stains on my shirt. So that's how much like that's how sweaty and like disgusting it was. And I was surrounded by people who were just like challenging each other all day. Like they were literally like whatever stance you had on anything there was someone there ready to to basically like just argue for the sake of arguing and you saw what was really surprising to me is that you would have these individuals like just one person who shows up at a protest with a sign that says like all lives matter to a black lives matter protest and it's just like for what like why would you come like it's just you that, that was what was like, I think, really what I really struggled to understand, which is like there's people who just want to start, want to antagonize for no reason. Man. And it's, I also. It's like the internet in real life. <laughs> I was like, just going to say. Yeah. Like, so like those comments were like all of a sudden, like someone saying some really terrible thing for the sake of like typing and hitting enter. Like that was, was like it was happening in real life. It sprung to life. Yeah. And it was exhausting. Oh. Like, it made me tired. I wonder whether people who were there to make a specific activist point felt that they had, like, done what they came to do. I mean, there were definitely a lot of protests, but I think that we're seeing a lot more protests at the DNC. Mm-hmm. And probably, I think, strategically, like, might be where I would go if I was wanted to, right. to do something. Yeah, I mean, I think that people had, had their actions and, and wanted their voices to be heard. I would say that people left satisfied. The other thing I saw in Cleveland that I thought was really amazing is that I didn't really attend or hear about very many LGBTQ actions or protests. Mm -hmm. But the actions that I was going to, whether it was immigration or fracking or poverty, those events were organized by LGBTQ people. And the other thing I saw was like fracking and immigrants coming together to protest against Trump, which I thought was really fascinating. I mean, why do you think that is? Do you think that there is something about LGBTQ people who are like natural coalition leaders or is it just, um, I don't know. Why, why do you think that is? That is a hard (laughs) question. Um, I think that as a gay person, I've, I don't know, like, we've already had to come out of one door and, like, like why not go into another one and, like, start speaking about another issue? Mm-hmm. Um, maybe there, there just there might be a sense of that, but I actually don't know. I think, yeah, that's a hard question. I mean, I don't have an answer to it either. But Neither do yeah. I. I just, like, made one up. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, to great. To run my mouth. Right. <laughs> to respond <laughs> what, to something. That's what this is all about, okay? <laughs> yeah, no, I have no uh, idea. I, I take it all back. <laughs> I love that you went right into that. That was totally on my list. Um I want to talk to you, and this is sort of a bigger question, but it's like about the things that we, that most of us are not watching very closely. You know, I think about that whenever there's a big circus type event, like the RNC or the DNC. And I think about it when issues that I care about are like off news cycle, you know, like I think maybe, maybe this is like a journalist way of thinking. But one thing I really admire about the work that you do is like, um, you're good at watching those corners when other people aren't watching them or maybe when they're not in the headlines. And I'm, I'm thinking like specifically about the story that you did recently about um, 
Texas deciding what to do with transgender inmates in its prison system. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that and like how you keep an eye on so many things that are like not getting the attention they deserve. So I think that the way that I make that happen is that I, whatever is happening in the news cycle, I then go look at and think, like what marginalized group I'm basically trolling the news, like what marginalized group is this going to affect? Mm-hmm. Um, and so the story that you're talking about in, um, in Texas is actually immigration and customs enforcement. Okay. So ICE, mm-hmm. who I worked on an, an investigation with my colleague, Christina Cosentini, and we found that ICE holds uh, on average holds about 75 transgender detainees every night. So these are, a lot of the time, these are transgender immigrants who are seeking asylum and they presented themselves at the border, a port of entry, and say, mm-hmm. like, I'm here to seek asylum, and they put them in, in detention until a judge can hear the case. And these people face a lot of abuse. A lot of the times they're detained with, where they experience the same type of abuse that they were escaping in, in, their, in their own home right. countries, or they're put into solitary confinement to, in the name of protection. And so what ICE has done is they, they have one facility in Santa Ana, California, so near Anaheim, mm-hmm. um, near Disneyland of all places, um, where they place what they call GBT detainees, gay, bisexual, transgender detainees. And so they've been trying to open another one of these facilities and they haven't been able to find a place, but they did find this like small rural town in Texas to... <laughs> open up one of these GBT pods. Also, P.S., I love that like ICE just made up its own acronym. It's like we have an acronym that like people is commonly used and they're like, no, we're going to have a new one. Yeah, GBT. Yeah, okay. Um, and so middle of middle of Texas, middle of nowhere, like not close to anything? Yeah, the other, the, they were going to open one in Adelanto, which is also like, I don't want to say in the middle of nowhere because we're probably going to get emails about that, but relatively rural. <laughs> sure, sure. Everywhere is somewhere, but yeah. we can say super rural. Super yeah. rural. Turbo rural. <laughs> Turbo rural. <laughs> we're like, like maybe not the most LGBT friendly of prison guards. That's where the U.S. government wants to send transgender detainees who are seeking asylum. Not only do they have to wor- worry about these prison guards who who oftentimes just like this is the first time they're learning about transgender people but also like the their advocates so that their lawyers and and oh. just advocates who who are pursuing their their cases like it's like if you want to go to Adelanto it's like two hours away from LA um mm-hmm. and but you have to come back so it's like a three four hour trip and then the same thing in Texas like it's a hard place to get to and do they, the justification is that it's like for their own safety or something like that? Is there a justification made? LGBT people in detention, mm-hmm. I think across the board, regardless of whether it's an immigration detention center or a prison, like they do face um, higher rates of physical and sexual assaults. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's a tough question because some people want to go to those those facilities because they are safer. So I think I would probably want to go to one of those facilities, but other people say, no, mm-hmm. that like I need to be close to my family. I need to be close to my lawyer and, and they want to stay where they are. Other people, the conditions are so bad that they asked to be deported from the same place, from the, from the places that they were escaping in the first place. Wow. And do you, I mean, it's interesting. Do you feel like highlighting? I mean, I know that I, I, I feel like I see 
well, I see a lot of sides to the work that you do, but I definitely see two big strains being like just illuminating like things that are problems, but then also highlighting people who are working to solve them or movements that are working to solve them. And on that sort of like on the more activist side of things or advocate side of things, has there been something that you've written about lately or maybe even read about that has surprised you or has made you sit up and be like, oh, that is like a really interesting approach to a deep entrenched kind of like the kind of problems you were talking about before? Um, I mean, I think that I was in Orlando after the the shooting at the Pulse nightclub mm-hmm. and I was reporting on undocumented immigrants who were at that bar and who... We know that there was at least one person that died. I've heard of at least five people who were undocumented. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these people like, haven't come forward. I've been in touch with these folks, and not one of them has, has uh, been willing to come to be on the record and, and share their story. Someone who was injured in the shooting but Someone survived? Someone who was injured and mm-hmm. survived, yeah. And so a lot of these people have no way to work um, because they're still in recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, they are in... Florida, which has a Republican governor who provides emergency care for, for immigrants. But when it comes to long-term care, there's very little uh, resources unless you find an advocate that will help you navigate that system. But I think what, what surprised me there is that the group that was fundraising for for these victims mm-hmm. who raised, I think, millions of dollars, or at least like over a million dollars like pretty immediately, came out early on and said like hate has no color or like no status like it's mm-hmm. like we will help whoever needs the help and so i am surprised sometimes when people are just like ready and like before i ask the question they're they're telling me that they're they're being inclusive and thoughtful and and welcoming right oftentimes it's harder to remember the bad news no it's harder to remember <laughs> the good news <laughs> than the bad news but yeah, I, I can't. Re- I can't think of a of another example where I've been pleasantly surprised <laughs> while I've been reporting. Um, so, who was the person that you couldn't uh, you couldn't bring yourself to talk to? So, before I went to Orlando, I was reporting on a hate crime in San Bernardino, and there was a woman there. Um, she was a Muslim woman um, who was at a car wash and. Um, there was a man who came up to her with a knife and said, I don't trust you. And, um, and followed her for a while. And of course it was like a busy day at the car wash and she had to be there for like 30 minutes and all this time this man's following her. And finally the police come and this man like basically threatened her with a knife at one point. And um, were people around her like supporting her or like protecting her? Or was she just... No, I, I, but I also don't know that people saw what was happening mm. because it, like it was a man who was following her. Although finally she did go to the attendant at the car wash and the attendant called the, the police. Mm-hmm. But this woman was wearing a hijab. And one of the things that she said to me was like that Muslim women are like the most visible, some of the most visible people in our society because like they, they go out into the streets and everyone knows exactly who they are right? and think that they know what they believe also. And so when I was in Orlando, I went to this vigil, and there were hundreds of people there, and there were two Muslim women who had attended that that vigil, and there was a little circle around them because no one was approaching them. Oh wow! And I remembered this 
quote that this woman from San Bernardino had shared with me about how like Muslim women are the most visible people in our society. And I really wanted to just ask like what brought them to this, like ask them any, that's the same questions I would ask anyone else. Like what brought you here today? And I couldn't (laughs) because I was afraid that, that I would have broken down. And part of that I also think is like how I was dealing with just being a gay Latino reporting on a story about gay Latinos being targeted mm-hmm. and killed. But yeah, I, I tried my breathing exercises and they didn't work. I couldn't, I couldn't walk up to these two women. You didn't think about approaching them and like just letting yourself cry while you talked to them? <sighs> um, I mean, I have no problem crying, <laughs> but in this case, like I just didn't want to bring my crying. <laughs> to their space no I mean I could have hugged them and just like not said any words but I didn't do that either um yeah maybe the natural follow up is like how do you take care of yourself (laughs) if it's so easy to remember you know all of this negativity I think I'm trying to figure that out Mm. um I think one of the things I'm trying to do is sleep more Mm. I'm not being successful. If it's good enough for Ariana Huffington, it's good enough for no. you, right? <laughs> I mean, yes, but that was sarcastic. I, but no, yes. I know, I know. But I support you. Sleeping I will. More. I want one of those sleeping pods that she sleeps in. Yeah. My entire team that I um, on the editorial side is in New York or, or Florida, and so which means that oftentimes I'm in meetings at like six or seven a.m. every day. I think you sort of just have to be like a positive person also when you're reporting around these issues. Um, And I think that I've gone through a lot of things in my life that have given me coping mechanisms Mm -hmm. and just like sensibilities that allow me to like breathe things out. And so, and I really believe in like the power of just like faking it till you make it. I've also just like, sometimes I just won't approach people who, um, I mean, this has only happened once where like I knew I couldn't approach someone or I would start crying. Um, and that was in Orlando, mm-hmm. of all places. But I don't know. I, I, I haven't given you an answer, but because I don't have one, other than like doing it little by little. Right. Ice cream is also one thing. I, I was love. just going to say, are we going to talk about dessert now? <laughs> no, I honestly like do love ice cream. If anything, <laughs> but that sounds like a problem. I think if you're trying no. to solve issues with ice cream. No, I don't actually think. I think that it's totally fair to be like, I take pleasure in things like ice cream, and I actually would like you. Right, but when we're talking about <laughs> a coping mechanism, <laughs> like it's not like I do appreciate expensive ice cream, especially, but like it's not how it's not sufficient. I can live (laughs) i know i know fair (laughs) enough and i would i would never suggest that like you can get over the like the weight of all of these interlocking injustices with a pint of expensive ice cream yeah um but i mean it definitely helps i think where can people find all of your work or find you or you know and read all of this stuff um, I think that you, if someone wanted to find Jorge Rivas, <laughs> so they could look for This Is Jorge. So that's my username on Twitter and on Instagram. And you spell Jorge, J-O-R-G-E. And you pronounce that Jorge, not George. Because uh, oftentimes I spell out my name for people and they say, oh yeah, George. George. <laughs> and you're like, no, no. no, no. <laughs> not at all. No, no. And then also on fusion.net 
I don't have like a short URL. Mm-hmm. People, I, I trust around. people to Google. Yeah, and also the Google. Just like, just type, oh my God, but there is a gay porn photographer with the same name. <laughs> and for the past several years, I've like my search rankings. This is the person who I've been competing with. Oh my um, God. He also owns JorgeRivas.com, which is the domain name I would like to have instead of, I have this is Jorge.com, which I love, but it'd be nice to have JorgeRivas.com, except there's like gay porno on that. Wow. Now no one will be like, oh, this is Jorge's side gig. Like that everyone will know. No, wrong Latino. <laughs> wrong Jorge. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, Jorge, thanks for being on the podcast. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure and we'll do it again over ice cream. And now we can eat snacks. You can find us many places on the internet on our website, callyourgirlfriend.com. You can download Call Your Girlfriend anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts or on iTunes, where we would love it if you left us a review. You can tweet at us at callyrgf or email us, callyrgf at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook, ugh, look that up yourself, or on Instagram at callyrgf. You can even leave us a short and sweet voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. Thank you to our friends at Argo Studio. And uh, this podcast is produced by Gina Delvac. Gina! <laughs> see you in LA, baby. Yeah, see you IRL in Los Angeles. <laughs>